Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Martellaro. And this week, my guest is Rob Griffiths. Rob, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, John. Thank you for the invite. For the listeners, Rob Griffiths founded macOSHints.com in 2000, went on to write for Macworld Magazine, has done some podcasting, and is currently one of the principals and partners of many trick software, makers of great Mac utilities, such as Witch and Name Angler. So, as with all my guests who are into computers, I'm always fascinated by the story about how you got started with computers. There's usually an Apple II in there somewhere, but I'll let you tell your story. There usually is. In my case, it was actually, gosh, uh, technically it was probably a TI Silent 700 and a Commodore PET that uh, got me into computers originally. Oh, yes, I remember those. And uh, yeah, I played Zork at MIT's Media Labs on a, a dumb terminal, and we had a TI Silent 700 at home, and we had you know the old modem with uh, the old acoustic coupler phone thing where you dial the number and put the phone in the connector and hope all the bells and whistles line up. Uh, but then uh, my dad did buy an Apple II um, sometime in... Oh, 19, whenever it was, it was the first year-ish of their release. So we did have one of those in the house. And that's 77, I think. So it would have been, no, it could have been second because we got it in 79 then. So two years in, we got an Apple II. Um, and I remember that machine with a, had two disk drives sitting on top of it, a big monitor on top of that. And Buddy and I spent hours goofing around that thing, trying to figure out how it worked and make it do different things. And I don't remember the magazines of the day, but uh, I remember typing code in from pages off of magazines and um, using peek and poke to change values in the in the code to see what that would do to the Apple. Soft talk. Yeah, soft Call talk. Apple. Yeah, so that was sort of my initial interest. But Apple it, cider. Yeah. <laughs> that's where it came from, but it didn't really... I, I got to, When I got to college, I didn't really, I don't know, programming just wasn't, I just didn't seem like what I wanted to do. So I actually went through a business school track, um, kept using and involved with computers and wound up in grad school and actually met a guy in grad school. Where did school. you go to college? Uh, undergraduate at Colorado State in your state. Fort and, Collins. Yes. And I went to graduate school at Northeastern in Boston. And while I was at Northeastern, I met a professor who was working on a project to help Apple with... Um, I was a finance major, so his his background was credit granting, and Apple at that time had a ton of independent dealers who needed credit in order to have Apple's products sitting on the floor, so if somebody bought one, they could provide the unit right away. And he was working on a system to help them judge the creditworthiness of those dealers, and I did a lot of work with him on the work for Apple while I was a grad student. And then uh, when I graduated, um, Apple wasn't ready to do anything, so I went and joined IBM for about a year and a half. And that was, it was not necessarily a pleasant experience. It was a good experience, but it was not necessarily a pleasant experience. Tell me about that, because everybody has a lot of respect for IBM. And oh, it's a, it's a. Well, at the time I was there, this is obviously a very different era. But they had lifetime employment and very rigid plans and policies. And you know, if you made a chart, there were certain words and numbers that had to be in certain colors and, you know, certain font sizes. And um, we put a proposal together that would have saved our particular plant, you know, millions of dollars over the span of some number of years. And we put it together shortly after I got there. And by the time I left, it hadn't been approved yet. Um, and that was, I you know, 19 or 20 months later. So, yeah, things move very slowly and methodic. Mm. And, Is there and, a dress code? Did you have to wear a white shirt and a tie? Oh, white shirt, tie, jacket if you were going to a meeting. But if you're in your office, you could take your jacket off. Oh. Uh, <laughs> 
And uh, the, the, the biggest difference to me was that, um, at least at my level, which obviously was fairly low because I just started out of grad school, um, everything is reviewed by at least two or three levels of management. So you put something together and it get changed by a manager and then his or her manager would change it, then his or her manager would change it, and then finally it might get approval and you could send it out. And uh, during this time, I kept in touch with the professor from grad school. And eventually, Apple was ready to hire, and I got the job, so I moved to California. And uh, Oh, what year was this? Uh, this was 1990-ish, 89-90, right, right around there. Yeah, when was the California earthquake? The first one in the late 1989, I think? I don't remember. So it would have been just after that. Um, so you're another Apple alumni. I am. And I got there, and my job was essentially to help finish the system from Apple's perspective and roll it out to, at the time, Apple had a number of field offices across the United States and Europe, and they were all going to implement the system. I had to write the training manual, provide the training, install the system, test, you know, debug, all that kind of stuff in each of the field offices. So, But my first job was writing the basically, if you will, the help file, the instruction manual on how to use this thing. So I put it together, and I took it to my boss, and I said, I get ready for your review. You know, this is my IBM training coming to play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he looked at me and said, what? I said, I'm assuming you want to review it before it goes like, no. He says, if you think it's done, go ahead and send it. Like, oh, this is different. So yes, it is. Back to my desk and spend a little more time going over all the nuts and bolts to make sure it all worked. Because That's uh, called enough rope to hang yourself, though. Also. Exactly. It was, it was just very different than the IBM way. So for me, that was a big adjustment, but it was great. I mean, I, I was at Apple for almost five years, I think. And uh, I, had a, I had a blast. It was a, a fantastic company to work for, even though the when I was there was not necessarily the best time in its history. But it was, I'm still very glad for that experience. Yeah, 1990 to 95 were some pretty rough years. That was before Steve Jobs came back back and Apple was getting into trouble and I think yeah, it was 90, Windows 95 was giving Apple grief and there was that famous Business Week cover. Yeah, and it was, uh, let's see, it was post, it was a tail end of Scully and uh, Spindler for a while and uh, then I can't remember came after Spindler, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was not necessarily the greatest I of financial. I think after Spindler left, it was Gilamilo. Yes, that's who it was. Yeah, so I, I think I left. I left in ninety three ish. So um, and I moved to Oregon primarily. Uh, the, you know, as cool as California was, I was actually sort of. Uh, I was tired of the expense and the cost of living in California, so I moved to Oregon and joined a small software company up here called Central Point Software, which made a little program called Mac Tools, which you may remember. I remember them. Uh, yeah. And uh, they lasted for about six months, and Semantic bought them out and wanted me to move back to California. <laughs> so I said no and took a diversion for a number of years as a finance guy for a trade show company that produced regional technology trade shows around the country. So you've got a lot of business experience. I think that's really helping you with many tricks. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like, you know, I, I started, with, if you will, with the biggest of the big, which, you know, IBM at the time was, I don't know, half a million employees or some, some ungoshly huge number. And Apple, when I got there, I think was about 12,000, so it felt, or maybe even less, uh, felt very small. And I went to CenterPoint, and I think we had 100. Um, and when I joined the trade show company, we had uh, 14. So, yeah, sort of continual stream. And now I'm in a company with two. So, uh, you know, it's almost gotten as small as possible. So, 1990 to 1995, and then Central Point kind of moves us up almost to Mac OS Hints. I wanted to ask you how about that got formed. Was that a new project for you, or was that a side thing while you were employed? 
that was a side thing. I was working for the trade show company, and you know, obviously, I was still very involved in the Mac and everything that was happening with it. And I think at that time, I might have written a couple minor articles for MacWorld on Excel or tips or something. I can't even remember, but not not a lot, one or two. Um, but I started reading about Mac OS X, and uh, and the beta came out. It was just so different than prior versions of the Macintosh operating system that I, I, I had a, a buddy who's a very good um, technical Unix user, Linux user. And I found myself asking him the same questions all the time because in the beginning, in the public data, beta days, and even for quite a, quite a while thereafter, Terminal was an integral part of, of using Mac OS X if you really wanted to get anything done. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, you know, I, I'd either kept uh, messaging or emailing or tech calling him and saying, "How did it? What was that weird obscure command again?" So there's got to be a better way. So one night I, I was just sitting there, I was talking to my wife, and I said, That's, I'm gonna, "There's got to be. I just want a system to keep all these tips together." And there was no intent really of of sharing it. It was just I wanted something so I don't have to bug my buddy as often. And I sort of stumbled on this thing called Geek Log, which was what they called like maybe they still called Content Management System. That word sort of gone out of favor, but there were a whole bunch of them back then: PHP Nuke and Geek Log and uh, Joomla. Maybe I can't remember. Um, but I just kind of luck of the drive picked. Geek log, and as I'm looking at it, it's like, well, it looks almost as easy to put this information online as it does to keep it on my system. So, did a little bit of work, found a web host, got it up and running, and launched a Hint with no intention of it other than being maybe like a few geeky Mac OS 10 users would visit occasionally, and and we could share our knowledge. I've hit that site a lot in the past. It ran for quite a while, didn't it? It did. I mean, I launched it in. November of 2000, so technically it would turn 20 this year if it were still around. Um, and when did it? So it kind I of ran got frozen from, around 2014, didn't it? Where you kind of like yeah. left it in uh, place. So I left. Well, I didn't leave, but I I ran it on my own until about 2005, and then MacWorld purchased the site and my hired me essentially to run it and write for them, and then I kept doing that through 2010. Um, early 2010 is when I joined Many Tricks, and yeah, the site. I mean, even by the time I left in 2010, I mean, the OS at that point was 10 years old and, and quite mature. So the volume of tips had gone down, and the type of tips had changed a lot. There were, you know, in the beginning, it was a lot more exploratory, and here's how you change this setting to make Mac OS 10 work more like Mac OS 9, or to do a thing that you didn't think it could do, and it became not quite as exploratory. Apple started locking stuff down. You, you know. I don't know if you remember the early versions of Mac OS X, people were able to theme it. You know, you could change all the widgets and windows and such. And I think that was up through about Tiger. And then they they blocked the ability to do that. So the site had been sort of petering out just because the amount of knowledge that was shared has already been was huge. Um, so I think I left in 2010 and and they hired uh, I can't remember who his name was, but uh, he ran it. Craig Craig Arco ran it for a couple years. And then I think they took it a house, and then it was sort of like it was down to the point where there was a tip every two or three weeks was appearing, so it just mm-hmm. wasn't as a standalone site. So, yeah, they did. Uh, it is still online at hints.macworld.com. You can search it, but you need to search it through uh, a web search engine on the front end. So you do that, you know, site colon hints.macworld.com, and then what you want to search for, and it does work. And uh, a surprising number of the tips still work. So, I mean, there's still some I still use on my Mac today. It's, it's awesome. But Those it was a very— interesting days. 
Yeah, and it was a very you know it was not a planned career change in any way. It was a, it was a hobby. Um, I would wake up early. I wake up early anyway, but um, I'd wake up a little extra early, run the hints for each day, go to work, do my job, check my email during lunch, come home, check the email in the evening, and um, you know over time it, it just became like the amount of time in the morning it took was increasing and the lunch email load was huge. And I was starting at a point where I was talking to my wife's like, yeah, I, I'm either going to have to start running. I, I had no ads um, for the longest time. And I said, I'm either going to have to start running ads so I can quit my job or find somebody to take this from me because <laughs> it's getting to be more than a hobby. And about that time I started talking with Rick at Macworld and, um, one thing led to another and they bought the site and let's get to that awesome. in the second half of the show. I want to ask you how you fell in with Macworld, because I have fond memories of reading your work there. And so let's talk about that. But uh, first, folks, we have to take a commercial break. I'm chatting with Rob Griffiths. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with Rob Griffiths. So Rob, tell me about how you fell in with the Macworld team. What what motivated you to write? Uh, so as I recall this, and obviously it's gearing fuzzy with the history of time, but, um, the hints were, the hint site was getting fairly popular and, and I wound up, I started doing a bunch of freelance work with Macworld, um, converting hints into, I think, bi-weekly originally hints articles on Macworld, um, and at some point, I put together a book uh, with the help of a guy named David Pogue, who's somewhat well-known. Um, Never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that sort of got some attention. And, and at the time, Rick LePage actually lived in Portland, worked in San Francisco, but he was the editor-in-chief at Macworld. And we got to talking, and I, um, you know, because I had been writing for them, and he said, you know, would like to bring on board by the site, blah, 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 blah. And I, I had been independent for so long. I was a little concerned about how it would go over, but they were, they were great stewards. I mean, there was no heavy handedness. The site basically changed hands. My job, I quit my day job. I joined Macworld. Um, I stayed working at home. I got to stay in Portland, went down occasionally for business trips and WWC and whatnot. But, um, they, they did a great job running the site, you know, given that it was, you know, it was probably in its mid day mid midlife at, at that point and maybe tailing off a little bit even when they had purchased it um but they did great they provided help and it was great the great group of people that worked there at the time and i'm sure a great group now but i haven't worked with them so i don't know but it was, it was a wonderful group of people and and very very much uh all dedicated mac users you know there was nobody i ran into who was just sort of like yeah this is my job it was more like this, this is my job. I get to use it. Mac to work and Jason get paid Snell now. and Dan Morin. And yep. And uh, Chris Breen. Right. So it was a good group. That's a great team there. They're all doing very well these days. I think Chris yeah. is with Apple. 
and Dan is with Apple, and um, shoot, the name I'll forget is also with Apple. John Seff, John Seff's also with Apple. So Dan Morin uh, went to work for Apple. No, no, John Seff. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, Dan Dan Morin uh, is working on Six Colors with Jason and is a novelist, science fiction writer. Yes. Yeah, I've had him on the show. He's uh, love the books. If you like sci-fi, I like them. Cool. That lasted five years. It kind of blew up there at the end where a lot of people got laid off. I don't want to get into that too much. I suppose you don't either. Yeah, no, and I actually left um, before most of the bad stuff happened. I mean, there were some some troubles while I was there, but it was relatively minor compared to what happened. Um, and, and I didn't leave because I was tired of Macworld or the site necessarily, but um, Peter, who's the guy who owns and founded Minitrix, um came to me and basically, I'd been in touch with him since the earliest days of running Macros 10 Hints because I used to have this thing called a pick of the week and I made Butler a pick of the week at some point in time and he personally wrote and thanked me and we got in a conversation and then um, occasionally I get frustrated by something that Mac couldn't do and I like one night I sent him an email that said, you know, I'm not a Windows person, I really don't like using Windows but it does this one thing that's really cool because you can switch directly to the window of the app you want to use on the Mac, I have to switch to the app I want to use. It'd be cool if I could just switch to the window I wanted. And I think it was like a day or two later, I got this very rough, very basic, but functional window switching app in my email. And uh, that became Witch, which is our window switching app manager. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we just started, sort of kept, kept this conversation going over the years. And at some point he, he said, you know, I, I love writing code and I just, I don't necessarily like or can't find the time to both write the code and deal with support and running the business and keeping everything going and keeping the users happy would you like to join and you handle that part and we'll work together on the the design and then i'll write the code and you know want to come aboard and i talked over with my wife and we at the time had uh see that would be 10 we had a what seven year old and a four-year-old i think um so it's kind of like well if you're going to try it now it's probably the time to try it and uh went and so far it's i'm shocked it's been the college tuition dues come exactly (laughs) (laughs) you know and it was it was possible to do that because my wife has a has a good job and and is in a stable job she's been there for i think 25 years now almost 25 years so um yeah, it was a bit of a risk because Macworld is a nice, solid paycheck, and um, many tricks is <laughs> how much revenue do we make, and what's the share going to be, and how much do we need to leave in the bank. <laughs> so it's, it's a, it was a little different, but it's been an amazing experience. You wrote on your website that you have a love for the nuts and bolts of running a business and interacting with customers. That can be a very satisfying experience, although it can be kind of high pressure too. Yeah, it's uh, it's been you know the the. The upside is you get to hear from people who are using the apps, and you, I mean, and and depending on the app, I and mean, obviously when somebody's using Moom as a window manager, I don't learn a lot about the person or their behaviors or what they're doing. But like Name Mangler, which is our, our batch file renamer, it's incredible what some people do. I mean, I'll get an email about, hey, I want to do this thing because I have to rename seven hundred fifty-five thousand files. <laughs> really? How many? Yeah. And it goes, yeah, it worked great. I'm like, oh, it didn't crash. That's wonderful. I mean, that's, that's great. So, you know, the, the, I, lo- I like the interaction part. I like the um, getting to talk to people that actually use the code. And obviously there's downsides, too, because you get the occasional jerk who is pissed off about something that um, I, yeah, it may or may not be something that we did. Um, but 
being able to have those conversations that start ugly and if you can make them finish not ugly then that's that's almost as satisfying as as a dealing with somebody who's nice the whole way through um so you know that the downsides i would say are that there's no really such thing as office hours um there's you know i i, I could sit here and say that i'm not going to answer email outside of 8 a.m to 5 p.m pacific time but the problem is if you get an email from if I, and this is probably just me, but if I get an email from somebody in Australia who's having a problem with their license and they can't get the program working and they have a deadline, I feel terrible if, you know, 14 hours go by before I respond and then yeah. they're asleep. 14 hours go by. So they've lost, you know, essentially a full day because of something that was maybe a two second conversation. So as I'm sitting here in the evening, relaxing with the kids and family, I will occasionally pop the laptop open and just see what's up and make sure there's no crises before I go to sleep and check first thing in the morning. So, um, the same thing over the weekend. I mean, if somebody sends a tech report request on Saturday morning, um, I look at it and I mean, if it doesn't seem like it needs to be answered now, I won't answer it now, but if it's somebody having a crisis, I'll do my best to get them an answer so I can get back and working before, you know, two and a half days have gone by. You know, writers have to be OCD because they have to be obsessive about syntax and spelling and grammar. I think you're a bit OCD too. <laughs> Probably, I'm not, and that's something I've, I've met more OCD users. Our, our our most popular program is called Moom M O O M, and it lets you move in Zoom windows. That's the name is the merger of those two, um, but it, it allows you to do pixel precise positioning of your windows so you want to meet some people with ocd ship a product that lets them position windows exactly where they want them um we've got emails from people who are like you know i positioned these four windows this way and this top left one it's off by one pixel on the vertical and two on the horizontal and i don't know why <laughs> it's like, mm. like yeah you're right but i wouldn't necessarily notice that in my use because that's not where my ocd lies um but in the end, almost all those people have always come down. It's like, oh, right, there's something wrong with our rounding routine, or we made an assumption about some edge that wasn't necessarily true. Um, so it's 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 in it's satisfying in that sense too that it usually winds up in being something that we can fix and help them with, or at least get them to understand why it's happening. Um, a lot of users are upset when we can't precisely position a terminal window, you know, at a certain size, and the problem is terminal is a fixed width application so if you want it to be 122 pixels wide or whatever the number is it that won't work because it's going to add one more column that fits an additional full column of text whatever size that happens to be so terminal windows are not necessarily your friends if you're trying to do exact positioning so you're giving me a thumbnail sketch of a few of your apps are there any others you want to kind of like briefly describe for the audience yeah, I mean, our, sort of what I call the big three would be, I've been talking about Moom and Witch and Name Mangler are probably our most popular and most used apps. Um, we're working on, uh, we have an app called Usher, which was actually, uh, we called it, it wasn't retired. I think we had it on a hiatus for a long time because it used old QuickTime, which uh, officially died as of Catalina. And we didn't want to try to support you know, something that wouldn't run on Apple's latest operating system, but the task of removing old QuickTime and putting new QuickTime in was Herculean. And and Usher is very much a niche product. It's a media management app, but it's really cool. And, and we're about to ship version two of that. So Usher's pretty cool. It can come back from its hiatus. It's looking good. Um, we have a couple little utilities, a bunch of freebies too on our website that let you do things like around your display corners and 
little trivialities. But probably my favorite of our other apps is a little little app called Resolutionator, um, and it lets you more easily access resolutions on your display than by going into the System Preferences panel. And on some machines, particularly Retina machines, we can show more resolutions than Apple will show you um, for your display. So if you want to run your 4K display at some strange resolution that Apple doesn't provide, um, Resolutionator may be able to do that for you. And in some cases, it's kind of bizarre. You can actually run things at higher than native resolution. So I had a little 11-inch Air, and I can't remember what, 1024 by 768, I think it was. Yeah. But resolution, it actually showed values larger than that, where it would scale the image down and put it on the screen. Um, hard on the eyes, but um, if you wanted to see all of a spreadsheet and just had to see it, and all you had was your little Air, it worked. So I kind of like that because it, it has a hotkey, so you can essentially pop up a hotkey, pick the resolution you want, and it shows up on screen. Apple's been making some major architectural changes in uh, Mac OS in preparation for what we didn't know at the time, or we suspected, uh, the move to ARM. So through Mojave and Catalina and Big Sur, there's some big changes. Are, are there any curves that are being thrown at you besides the one you just mentioned that uh, you've had to deal with along the way? Um, you know, there's there's always something it seems in in each major OS update that uh, comes up, um, and I, I, I can't extensions, 32-bit yeah. apps. So, I mean, I'll give you an example of of when we moved to Catalina. Here's a real example. We have an app called TimeSync. It's a I don't want to I don't want to oversell it as a time management app. It's basically a, it's another one of those where I'd sent Peter an email and said, "Gosh, I just don't know where the day goes." And two days later, he sent me this little thing. It's here. This will show you where all your time goes in all your apps. <laughs> um, and that became TimeSync, and it's a very it's a it's a hobbyist toy more than it is a uh, you know it's not designed for somebody who has to bill by the hour very precisely. There's no invoicing tool; it just sort of shows you where your time goes. But anyway, when we ran it first on Catalina, um, it it wouldn't show you Windows. It would show you applications, but it wouldn't show you the Windows within those applications. And we're like, well, that kind of cuts down on the usability quite a bit. And we hmm. looked at it a lot, and and it wasn't a problem with the version we have on our website, but it was the App Store version that couldn't see these window titles. And uh, it took us the longest time, but Peter eventually figured out that the method he was using pre-Catalina um, – in Catalina, you were only allowed to use that method if your <laughs> this is true. You could only use that method if your app recorded the screen. So, because TimeSync wasn't a screen recording app, the App Store said, "Sorry, you can't use that method, and we're not going to let you in the store." Um, like, okay, so we added a screen recorder to TimeSync. Um, it can now optionally take a snapshot of what you do throughout the day and save them in a folder. You can make a time-lapse movie if you want to. That's an elegant answer. Go with the yeah. flow. Yeah. It's off by default, but if you if we wanted to be able to provide our users with window titles, that was the only way we could do it. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, it seems sort of bizarre to have to add a feature like that to get something very basic, but that was one of the rules Apple set. So we figured out how to comply. Well, we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to make sure I had time to talk to you about WWDC. That was a big thing last week. I wanted to get your response to the keynote and the content and the layout. Well, how did you feel about the keynote this year? Well, I thought it was, you know, I mean, I definitely missed the element of... There wasn't the buzz of live event. Obviously, there's no studio audience, and it wasn't live. With that said, I think the the keynote was very well produced. Um, I liked the variety of people that they had come through. I don't know how many. It must have been almost a dozen or ten. Diversity. Yeah, 
And it was great, you know, so instead of just seeing the same three executive talking heads on stage the whole time, you get to see a, a lot more people and a lot more people a lot closer to the product. So that was kind of cool. I think a lot of the stuff they announced is is very nice. I like that you'll be able to put widgets on your home screen on iOS. Um, the the Mac OS changes, uh, um, <laughs> I'm trying to adjust. They seem different to me. There's things that... Uh, to be honest, what it looks to me like is they are preparing to make a touch-based Macintosh of some sort. And I don't know if that'll be a laptop-first ARM machine, a laptop screen, but the spacing on everything in Big Sur is much bigger than it's ever been before. Menu bar icons, menus themselves, lists and finder, um, all the icons now have a nice sort of blobby square, rounded rectangle well, if background. You, if you go to run native iOS apps on Mac exactly. OS on ARM, you got to be able to touch the screen to activate your iOS apps. It's not like this is going to be a Catalyst app that's had a Mac interface grafted on top of it. It's yeah. an iOS app. So, yeah. I think we're going to have to see a touch screen. So, and I think if if I if I put my okay, it's got to survive touch. You know, it doesn't. I don't think it has to be. I don't think Apple's striving for making Mac OS X a fully touch compliant interface. You know, that would be a much different scenario. You'd have to rework open and save dialogues and, and menus and and I mean the tap targets still aren't big enough to make finger work easy for the whole OS. But if you put a layer in there where you can, if you have to, and such that when you run an iOS app, you can use it. I, I think that's where we're headed. A, so I put that hat on. I'm okay with some of the spacing. But there are things like the the icons in the toolbar, and you can see this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not breaking any sort of NDA, but if you go to Apple's website, um, you can see toolbar icons are all black and white now and very hieroglyphic might be the best way you know, in terms of their mm-hmm. appearance. That's what of and they're very hard to distinguish when you look at like an app like i think maps is the one they have on their website and it's got like seven or eight different toolbar items in its preferences and they all just kind of look like black scribbles um so i don't i don't like that direction trend and i hope there's some change before big Sur ships and there's this very weird thing going on with shadows and icons it's supposed to look 3d-ish but it just looks bizarre i mean it looks like somebody got, it, it honestly looks like somebody found the drop shadow tool in their favorite app and just applied it you know it's just kind of weird so but those are visual things i mean that the os itself seems well thought out the, the new features in maps look cool i like that the sidebar is regaining emphasis um i think yeah. sidebars are a way to interact with any number of apps and it seems like apple may be heading in that direction again which is great news how do you feel about the transition to apple silicon I think it could be very good for Apple. Um, I think it could be complicated. Uh, obviously, they've done this a number of times before. So, you know, the, the demos of Rosetta 2 looked very impressive. To be running a, you know, a fairly high-end game through Rosetta 2 and getting good frame rates out of it was impressive. Seeing Maya running in Rosetta 2 was cool. And um, if they make it... If they make it really effective like that, what it means for a lot of small developers like us is... We may not. Have, I mean, Peter is our only programmer. That, that's it. We have Peter, and we have ten plus apps. If we have to sit down and are forced to update every single one of those to recompile them for ARM silicon in order to even get reasonable performance out of them, all of a sudden this transition becomes a crisis for us because we will have to do that very quickly for all of our apps. But if Rosetta two is good and doesn't have a uh, an overhead impact that's too high for a laptop user, we can address it more in line of a normal app. Updates like oh we have some updates to make to Name Mangler 
By the way, we went ahead and recompiled it. It also now also natively runs on ARM Apple Silicon. Um, and so instead of it being a crisis, it becomes part of a plan, and I like that much better. I think that'll work out because I've heard the Rosetta works very well with like office utilities. Yeah, and it doesn't no- work so well with high speed games. So right. I think and you're in good shape it- with utilities. Yeah, and the the most yeah, the most visually demanding thing we have is Usher, which has a whole bunch of uh, image previews on screen. It's same kind of like looks like iPhoto or Photos, if you will. Um, so you know, if that runs fine, I think other stuff will run fine. So I like I like the emphasis on Rosetta. I was a little concerned about what they were going to expect us to have done before they ship the new machines. Um, the thing that I think is appealing is that. You know, with Intel, Apple was barely, I mean, Apple leaving Intel is probably not going to negatively affect Intel's earnings. I mean, it's it's some billions of dollars, but it's not it's not a huge chunk of their operating income. Um, now they're going to have a chip in their machine that they've built, they've designed, that they've integrated all the stuff together. It will all work very well. Some of the numbers that we've seen on the web that we aren't supposed to have seen, according to Apple's rules, indicate that, I don't know if you saw this, but an emulated... Benchmark result is on on the arm one of those arm processing uh, transition kit machines is outpacing native Windows running arm uh, on the same benchmark, which is an astonishing compliment to Apple's both the silicon and the Rosetta behind the scenes to do all that transition on the fly. Uh, it says it's performing very well. Yeah, I think the people are going to be pretty happy with Rosetta too. So far, anyway, we'll see how it goes. Excited about it because it seemed, you know, if you look at Intel's chip market, chip market, it, they really have sort of stagnated at the desktop and laptop level. They've very slow incremental changes, and if you look at that, contrast it to what Apple's done with iPad chips over the years, and if if they can apply that same force and and development rate to, to Mac chips, I think the future looks pretty good. I want to close with a jackpot question I ask all the developers. So tell me how life with Apple as a developer is in general. What are some of the challenges you face, and what what would you like to change? Well, some of the challenges, um, the the Mac App Store is a challenge. Um, It's where most people look for apps that you know, for their Macs, because it's pre-installed and it's a couple clicks and easy to use. The problem is they have rules in place that make it very hard for apps like ours to even be there. Um, Movement, uh, which we had to remove from the store when we updated it because it cannot be sandboxed. When we do the next version of Moom, we will have to remove it from the App Store because it cannot be sandboxed. Mm-hmm. So the, the sandboxing requirement, and that, I mean, it, it's not that it... Technically, we can sandbox it, but the problem is that the the functionality which you which those apps use is called the accessibility API. That cannot be sandboxed. So the things we need to do to make Moom work in the sandbox, we can't do. Um, so Moom has essentially existed because it's it's been grandfathered because it was in the store before the sandbox existed. Um, so it's frustrating that Apple wants people to use the App Store but doesn't necessarily want to put all of the tools in the App Store that can make a Mac easier to use because those tools talk have programs that talk to other programs, and that goes against the whole concept of the sandbox. So I understand where they're coming from, but it's definitely a frustration of mine in terms of it would be nice if the App Store were more representative of everything one could do with a Mac. Uh, I don't think it necessarily is today because of those restrictions. Um, the you know Outside of the App Store... Our main fear every year is just that 
you know, we watch that keynote and it's, I watch it two ways. I watch it as a consumer and I go, oh, gosh, this stuff's all amazing. I watch it as a developer with our current app suite and go, please don't step on any of these. Please don't. <laughs> I seem yeah. to remember Phil Schiller saying a few years ago that the Mac would always support apps from a website. Yeah, and I think it always will. The question is, will it, you know, it's the, you can say that you support apps from a website, but if you make it require 14 steps, two signature pages, four big yellow and red warning signs, you know, who's going to run them? Um, so, I, I mean, I hope that it's more than just lip service because the store does should not be the, you know, be all and end all of the only way to get Mac software. Um, yeah, I agree. Okay, well, we've run out of time. So is there anything else you want to close with? Any exciting projects or something you want to tell us about that's in the works? Or? Well, I think I said I mentioned it briefly, but Usher 2 is very close to out. We're wrapping that up. And um, for the Moom fans out there, the good news is that's next up on our list. I can't give you an ETA, but once Usher is out the door, that's what we're going to start working on. Uh, it's been a very long time. I think Moom 3 has been out for, I don't know. Five years, six years, seven years, some number of years greater than a lot. Um, and we have a lot of really great feedback from our users over the years, and we're looking forward to putting as much of it in as we can and keeping the app easy and fun to use. So it's it should be it should be good. I don't know I don't know when you're gonna see it, but that's our next big project. All right. Well thanks, Rob, for coming on the show. It's been a nice tour of your career and interesting insights into uh, you and many tricks in your life as an Apple developer. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing. It's been great. Well, thanks for having me, John. It was a lot. Pleasure talking to you. Folks, you've been listening to John Marchalero and Rob Griffiths on the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week.